So this is my quick opportunity to just kind of say thanks to Josh. Uh, but I know that if I say thanks to Josh, the main thing he's going to want to say is really we should be thanking other people who are not in the room right now, teachers who are already out there, Macy and Ian for all of their hard work. And so instead of like just clapping for Josh, um, what I would love to invite you to do is, uh, as you have opportunity, to say thanks to those uh, kids ministry uh, people, uh, those Redeemer Kids people who have been serving us today and over the last number of weeks. Please do express gratefulness um, and uh, please pass along uh, your sincere gratefulness to them. Um, they have worked so hard and I am so glad uh, for what they've put together. Now, I know this is really confusing because we're doing a sermon series in First Thessalonians, but I'm asking you to turn instead to Second Thessalonians. And all I can say to that is I'm sorry. It's confusing, but it really is Second Thessalonians. Thessalonians chapter 1. It's just something that God kind of put on my heart uh, to take a break in our first Thessalonians series and look at this this little verse here in 2 Thessalonians. But before we do that, I want to tell you the story about little Johnny. All right. Now, um, little Johnny is not a real person. Little Johnny is a fictional character. Um, but I have extensive soccer coaching experience, which has allowed me to put together the composite character, little Johnny, very accurately. Um, my coaching experience is not quite as extensive as Scott's and my playing experience is not quite as extensive as Andy's and I have coached along with Nat and with Todd and perhaps some others in this congregation. So you all know I'm not exactly like the, the most gifted, but I've done it a lot and I've observed things while coaching six-year-old soccer. And what happens when you coach six-year-old soccer, like every single season, Okay, is at some point, little Johnny, or maybe it's little Mike this season, or little Sam or whoever, right? But at some point, little Johnny is out there on the side of the soccer field in the middle of the game, kind of staring off into space, not really paying attention to what's going on around him, when lo and behold, a soccer ball rolls right up to his shin pads, and when that soccer ball rolls right up to his shin pads, little Johnny realizes, oh, I'm playing soccer right now. And so little Johnny starts to look around the field and little Johnny remembers from practice on Wednesday that when the ball rolls up to my feet, I try to score a goal. And little Johnny looks around the field and suddenly realizes there's a goal. And little Johnny starts kicking the ball toward that goal. And the coach on the sideline is waving his or her hands like this at little Johnny. And the parents are over there with their hands cupped around their, their mouths like this, screaming, Johnny, Johnny. All the while, Johnny is just getting more and more amped for all of the enthusiasm on the sideline for what's going on as little Johnny races faster and faster and finishes and slams that ball right into the back of the net and turns around in his moment of glory, cheering, jumping, screaming for joy, Mom, did you get that on Facebook, right? As the coach is on his or her knees crying, saying, that's the wrong goal, right? If you've ever coached or been around six-year-old soccer, you've seen the parable of little Johnny play out at least once or twice a season, right? 
And what, what I learned as a coach from observing the story of little Johnny is this. What I learned is that sometimes we all need a little bit of direction in the chaos of life, right? Out there on the field of play, no matter what directions we've received in the past, when we're out there in the chaos of the field of play, when we're out there in the chaos of real life, sometimes we can all use just a little bit of direction, And so what I've learned to do as an awesome coach of six-year-olds in soccer is I gather them up and before any kickoff, we get all the players together and we say, all right, we're trying to score goals. Which goal is our goal? Everybody put your finger in the air and everybody point at the goal. That's our goal. And so we get all the kids to do it and we give them the direction. That's the way we're going, right? And here in the book of 2 Thessalonians, we meet a church that is living through the chaos of real life as followers of Jesus Christ. And they've received some directions for following Jesus before. But here in the middle of the chaos of real life discipleship, the missionary team that helped establish this church in Thessalonica just a little while earlier is writing back to the church and they're giving some basic words of direction. They're basically saying to the church, everybody put your finger in the air. Everybody point at the direction we're headed in. The missionaries who helped plant this church are giving simple directions for discipleship. To this congregation in the city of Thessalonica. Directions for discipleship that we need as well today. This congregation uh, had lived through a, a difficult season. As we'll see here in the text. But why don't you look with me if you would. At 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I want to read just a couple of verses here. Just a couple of really simple verses. They go like this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing And for the sake of context, I'll read verse 4 as well. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. You see, just like a coach of Six-year-old soccer needs to talk to the players on the field in the midst of the chaos they're living through and say, this is the goal we're aiming toward. This is the direction we're going. So also this missionary team needed to gather up this church in the chaos that they were living through. Chaos that's described in verse 4 as persecution. And we mean real persecution here. Just a year or a year and a half earlier, their brother Jason was dragged before a court because of his association with Christianity. And I don't mean he was dragged before a court because he was a part of a civil protest uh, 
over, you know, kind of ethnic divisions in the city in the name of his faith. We don't mean that he was dragged before a court because he was involved in a civil protest of Roman imperial overreach of government or something like that. We mean he was dragged before a court of law simply because of his association with Jesus Christ and for no other reason. There's real persecution that this church has been facing. And not only persecution, verse 4 also speaks of their afflictions which speaks not only of external circumstances, but of internal angst, internal pain that they're feeling in their lives and in the chaos of real life trying to follow Jesus through real persecutions and in the chaos of trying to follow Jesus through real affliction and inner pain, the missionary team is gathering them up and saying, this is the direction of discipleship. Let's all look this way together. And let's be honest, we've lived through our own year and a half of chaos, haven't we? Our persecutions are very, very, very mild compared to what they experienced in Thessalonica. But there are no doubt pressures that we feel as Christians who are less and less so, uh, who, are, who are more and more so a minority in our surrounding culture. And certainly there are afflictions that we've all felt as we've lived through a global pandemic. Not one of you has ever lived through a global pandemic like this before. It's been confusing, challenging, and disorienting. And inwardly kind of there's turmoil that we sometimes feel about it. And the Holy Spirit through his word kind of gathers us up in the chaos of the real world that we're living in and says, here are some directions we need to look in. Let's look in this direction together as we think about discipleship. And let me point out to you just a couple of things here that we see in this passage that God is saying to us. One of them I'm going to handle very briefly is simply this. This passage says that in the context of a chaotic year, it challenges us to give thanks for our church. See, if you're sitting there in the city of Thessalonica and you get this letter from uh, the missionary team that helped plant your church and Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're writing back and they say, we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right. One of the things that happens to us as we hear these words spoken over our own church is something is stirred up in us to say, you know what? Just as Paul and Silas and Timothy say, you know what? We should be giving thanks for this church. Those of us who are sitting in the pews, we start to realize, you know what? Maybe I should be giving thanks for my church as well. Maybe we should be giving thanks for God's gift of the congregation that he's placed around us in a chaotic time. Now, the challenge of that, right, is that I think most of us, if we're honest, have something in our hearts that says, I would love to give thanks for the congregation I'm part of. Except, have you seen the people in my congregation? (laughs) Some of them are really immature. Some of them are really different than I am. Some of them didn't vote for the same people I voted for. 
So I would love to give thanks for the congregation I'm a part of. But do you know who these people are? And if we say that, we need to reacquaint ourselves with what the reality of Christian congregations have been like around the world and across the ages. We need to reacquaint ourselves with what congregations were like in the New Testament era themselves. You know, when Paul and Silas and Timothy are writing to this church in Thessalonica, it's not as if they're writing to a congregation full of fully mature saints who've got it all together. They're writing to a congregation a lot like ours, with some people who are more mature and some people who are honestly less mature in the faith, all sitting in one room worshiping Jesus together. They're writing to a congregation of people who grew up in different cultural contexts and would natively kind of view things a little bit differently when it comes to reading cultural trends around them. They're writing to a congregation that had a lot of room to improve. Who needed a lot of specific ethical instructions. A lot of specific doctrinal instructions. And yet writing to this church that didn't have their theology 100% in line. Writing to this church that needed to grow in walking out discipleship. Writing to this church full of people with ethnic and cultural differences. Writing to this church full of people who are at different phases of immaturity. Paul and Silas and Timothy say, you know what? We should be giving thanks for y'all. Which leads me to just kind of pause for a second and say, God, thank you for reminding me to give thanks for these brothers and sisters gathered here this Sunday. And thank you for the gift that they've been to me in this challenging and sometimes chaotic year that we've lived through. It leads me to even say to God, God, I know I've got my vision of how great a church would be if everybody were like me. I don't really mean that. (laughs) Because it leads me to say, you know what, God, I think your plan's a whole lot better than that, if I'm honest. So God, thank you for this congregation. Thank you for the dear brothers and sisters in my small group. Thank you for the people I've had the privilege of getting to know more closely over this last year. Thank you for the brothers and sisters who have been bold enough to ask questions and challenge me in my own thinking about things. Thank you for my brothers and sisters who have been a source of encouragement and strength when I felt weak and down. You see, one of the very simple things that 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3 puts in front of us is it gives us this reminder in the context of a chaotic year. Let's give thanks for our church. And maybe I could ask you this question specifically, if you're honest. What keeps you from doing that? Well... In addition to that, and maybe more specifically than that, as we pay attention to this little gem of a verse, and we pay attention to it, what we realize is not only that it's an expression of gratefulness, but more specifically, it's kind of a coaching gig, right? Because if we're there in that congregation in Thessalonica, and we hear this word that 
Paul and Silas and Timothy are saying, we thank God for you and we thank God for the increasing faith in your midst. and We thank God for the increasing love in your midst. What happens in our hearts? We start to realize if these are the things worth celebrating in the eyes of Paul, And if these are the things worth celebrating in the eyes of Silas and Timothy, maybe these are the things worth celebrating in our midst right now. And maybe these are the directions, the goals, the aims that we should adopt for ourselves as we continue moving forward through this chaotic season that we're living in. In other words, this passage not only says to us in the context of a chaotic year, let's give thanks for our congregation, it also says in the context of a chaotic year, let's aim to continue growing by God's grace. And when I say let's aim to continue growing, I don't mean that in this kind of, um, uh, how would we call it, this consumeristic American sense, where we're like we want to grow in the measurables of dollars and people. The crass way of saying it is, uh, since the kids are gone, we can say this, right? Uh, is we don't just want to measure Christian growth by bucks and butts. <laughs> how many bucks come in and how many butts are in the chairs on Sundays? That's the simplest way to measure what's going on in a church, but it doesn't really match the way that the New Testament talks about Christian growth and what the church is supposed to be after. Instead of just these crass worldly ways of measuring what God has for us and the growth God is calling us to pursue, what if we adopted the kinds of goals, the kinds of measures, the kind of metrics, if you will, that the New Testament gives us? And if we do that, we end up saying, in the context of this chaotic year that we're living through, let's aim to continue growing by God's grace. And I say God's grace, by the way, because there's this wonderful thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't pigeonhole us where we started. The gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us by grace also engages us with that same grace that saves us and begins a process of transforming us and changing us over time into the image of Jesus Christ. And so when Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth, he can say, look, I planted and Apollos watered. But listen, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. Did you realize that God grants to us an ability to grow and make progress by his grace? It's not all up to you and me. It's empowered by his grace. The same grace that saves us is the grace that empowers us throughout the journey of Christian progress and Christian discipleship. And so we end up saying in the context of this chaotic year, let's aim to grow by God's grace. And in what kinds of ways would we grow? What would that look like? There's a couple of categories here. It would involve increasing faith and increasing love. Increasing faith toward God and increasing love for one another. What if we made it our aim throughout the remainder of 2021 
to grow like that. Now, I'm going to tell you something kind of embarrassing. Because I try my best to like read cultural trends and just try to be at least a little bit aware of that. And what's a little bit embarrassing is I didn't even realize until I was like partway through my sermon prep this week that these are like trigger buzzwords. <laughs> these are trigger buzzwords that have been um, kidnapped, I might even say, by people in the culture wars, right? These are words that have been commandeered and sloganized in today's culture wars. And so on the one hand, you've got culture wars, people wearing t-shirts that say faith over fear. And on the other side of culture wars, I've got neighbors who have banners that say things like love is love. And in ways that I somehow at first didn't even realize, these simple words that are here in our text have been sloganized in today's culture wars. And I just want to kind of, first of all, apologize and say, if it's annoying to you that I'm using these words that are maybe annoying to see on Facebook, I just want to say I'm sorry and I didn't do that on purpose. But I also want to say a couple other things really briefly about that. First, I worry that when these words are sloganized, they become cheap replicas of the full biblical meaning. And I'm sure that some who lean right culturally have a rich idea of faith. I'm not denying that. And I'm sure that some who lean left culturally have a rich idea of love. I'm not denying that. But I worry that too often in the culture wars, these words are commandeered and turned into slogans and their meaning is cheapened and watered down. By being used in ways that scripture doesn't intend for them to be used. And secondly, I worry that in the us against them mindset that has taken over our society over the last few years. I worry that some people will read a passage like Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3. And will say, that's right, I want my church to be a faith kind of church. Or some people will read... 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3 and say, I want my church to be a love kind of church. But the God who gave us this Bible and our Savior and our Redeemer Jesus Christ is, is not into kind of dividing these things from each other. We're not meant to be either a faith church or a love church. We're meant to grow and to even increase and to multiply in both faith and love, not in faith or love. And so maybe one of the very simple ways that this passage meets us, in a way that I honestly didn't even fully anticipate, is maybe it helps us step back a little bit from the culture wars and listen to God himself on what it looks like for us to be a growing and thriving church. So having made those qualifications, let me talk a little bit about an aim to grow in faith toward God together as a church. And then we talk a little bit about an aim to grow in love toward others together as a congregation. First, let's aim to grow, to grow 
not just to stay where we are, but to grow and to increase in our faith toward God. Let's aim to grow in this respect. You know, sometimes we talk about faith as if it's kind of um, just kind of something that you're born with or not. I respect Katie's faith. I might, or I envy Katie's faith, or I appreciate or I admire Katie's faith. And I might say that in such a way as I might also say I admire Katie's red hair. As if it's like, that's lovely, but I could never do that. Or we talk about losing faith in the same way that we might talk about losing our keys. I don't know, I had it in my hand and now I don't, it's just gone. But in contrast with these kind of externalistic, I don't know, ways of thinking about faith, faith in scripture is much more like a heartbeat. In one sense, it's true. You either have a heartbeat or you don't. But in another sense, there's a very real sense in which that muscle that we call the human heart can be strengthened or can weaken over time. It can function more effectively in circulating the things that it's supposed to circulate or it can function less effectively in circulating the things that it's supposed to circulate. And so while it's true that faith at one level is a yes or no question, in Scripture there's a kind of ability to grow or strengthen or get healthier in the exercise and the circulation uh, of our faith. And this passage challenges us not just to say, yes, I have faith in Jesus, now leave me alone. This passage celebrates specifically that your faith is growing abundantly. Like the way that you plant a little tomato sapling in April. And then in August, you're like giving bushels of tomatoes to your neighbors, right? How did that little tiny thing end up enabling me to give bushels of things to other people? How? It grew abundantly. And in the same way, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 kind of gives us a vision of faith, not just being something where we say, check that box. I said my prayer. I learned the doctrine. I went to church, I became a member, check, 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 done with the faith thing now. It challenges us with a picture that each and every one of us can take a further step in flourishing in grace, in flourishing in faith. If you're a follower of Jesus, I wonder if you've considered this, that the, the current experience you have, of trusting in God is not all there is for you. There is more to this adventure of trusting God than you've yet experienced. There's an ability to not only have faith, but to positively flourish, to grow abundantly in it. We see that in Paul's way of talking about faith. For example, in Romans chapter 4, verse 20, Paul is talking about the story of Abraham and how God gave Abraham a specific promise about his family multiplying abundantly and the circumstances that 
Abraham was living through didn't seem to match God's promises. So if you're in Abraham's shoes, you're looking at, here's what God said, and you're looking around at the promises and you're saying, they don't seem to match. But notice what Paul says about Abraham's faith. He says in Romans chapter 4, verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And then notice this, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now here's my question for you very briefly as I bring up that description of growing faith in Romans chapter 4. What is it that Abraham was focused on as he was growing in his faith? Was he focused primarily on his circumstances as he was growing in his faith? Nope. He was focused primarily on God and God's promises as he was growing in his faith. Do you see that link? And so now let me ask you the question, how do you think you and I are going to grow in our faith? Will we grow in our faith primarily by studying our circumstances? No. We will grow in our faith by studying God and clinging to his promises. Let me give you a testimony from about 80 years ago. Uh, Many of you know the name C.S. Lewis. He was a, a literature professor who was converted to Christianity. And he lived in England through the horrors of World War II. Talk about a chaotic few years. Bomb shelters, raid sirens on the regular. And in the middle of World War II, he did a series of radio addresses to anyone willing to listen in London or beyond throughout England. They were later published as a book called Mere Christianity. And in that book, here's one of the sweet little insights we hear from C.S. Lewis about how faith works. He says, now faith is the art of holding on to things in spite of your changing moods. (laughs) Isn't that charmingly honest? If you're living with raid sirens and bomb shelters, your moods are going to go like this. But the art of faith is holding on to things. And in light of Romans chapter 4, we know what those things are, right? It's holding on to the promises of God in Scripture. It's the art of holding on to things. It's the art of holding on to God's promises in spite of our changing moods. And how do we do that? He goes on further. Now, faith is the art of holding on to things in spite of your changing moods. And consequently, one must train the habit of faith. The first step is to recognize that your moods change. Can we all admit that? Amen? All right. Moving on to the second step now. The next is to make sure that if you have once accepted Christianity, then some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. It's good advice. Whether you're living through 
bomb shelters and raid sirens or COVID-19 and Delta variants and friends who disagree with your politics and school policies you're not sure about and government officials you're not sure about and elections you're worried about and so on and so forth. This is good advice. You know how we're going to grow in our faith? By looking at our circumstances? No. By holding on to by holding on to the truth. And how do we do that? By deliberately holding in front of our mind for some time every day some of the main doctrines of the faith. Well, how would we do that? I love how simple this is. That, that is why prayers and scripture readings and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Faith must be fed. I wonder if you felt in your heart the need for your faith to be fed. We hear according to one brother in the faith who lived through chaotic years a century ago, tells us a path forward toward growing stronger in our faith. It's these simple Christian practices of gathering together for worship once a week. I don't know if you realize when we gather for worship, this isn't just what disciples, this isn't just what disciples do. Like if you're a disciple, you're supposed to worship. You better be there. It's also part of how discipleship happens. Our gathering together is shaping our hearts and our loves and our affections. Our gathering together is strengthening our faith. It's strengthening our awareness of who God is and how much he's promised. That's why we gather together for worship. It's not for a buzz emotionally. I hope it's an emotional uplift. We don't gather together just for an emotional buzz. It's not just because we're supposed to. And we gather together to worship in part because this is the way that we hold God's truth in front of ourselves. It's a way that our faith is fed. This is why we, this is why we read scripture and we dig into the pages of this book because in this book God makes himself known and he gives us his great and very precious promises as the early church called them. And this is why we pray. Because as we pray, we're getting exercise. I remember a time when I was a little kid when my dad started to get worried about his physical heart. You know, it sometimes happens uh, for middle-aged dudes whose dads had to have bypass surgeries over and over and over again that as middle-aged dudes, if we feel something funny in our chest, we have to take it seriously and we go to the doctor and we get it checked out. And I remember that time in my dad's life when he realized there were real worries about his heart, real worries that uh, that mirrored worries about his dad's heart a generation before him. And so what did my dad do about it? He started exercising more regularly. Started with walking half a mile and walking a mile, then walking half a mile and jogging half a mile, working his way up to running marathons consistently. Why do I bring that up? When we realize that our heart needs to be strengthened, we realize there are exercises. When we realize that our faith needs to be strengthened, there are exercises we can take as well. 
gathering together for worship, digging into the scriptures, praying and talking to God. Not just hearing these truths in our head, but using them as fuel for our interaction with our true and living God today. And this is, this is what we want to see prioritized when we gather together in our small groups. Our small groups are not just there so that we can get together and pat each other on the back and say, I'm so glad we're all good friends. They're there for spiritual exercise. So we can open up our Bibles together and open up our lives together and spend real time really praying. Really praying about our cares and our concerns and our fears and our worries. Really praying for one another that we would grow stronger. And not just keep coasting where we are in our faith. Now those are the best small group meetings I go to. Not necessarily the ones where we say everybody checked off their box and attendance was 100%. The ones where we show up and we really open up our lives honestly. We really open God's word and we find some truth. And then we, we really go to God in prayer. We pray for one another. Man, those are the meetings I love and those are the meetings I want to see multiplying in our midst. Why? So that we can continue to grow. Not just be stuck where we are, but continue to grow in our faith toward God. So here's one goal. Let's aim to grow in our faith toward God. Let's aim to grow also in our love for others. Of course, love is foundational to Christianity. Our Lord Jesus himself, on the night when he was betrayed, said to his disciples in John chapter 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love is foundational To Christianity, so much so that when Paul, who helped author this letter to Second to the Thessalonian church, when he wrote to the Corinthian church, do you remember what he said to them about love in relationship to a whole bunch of other important things? He says. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, and he says that's great. But if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love for other people in my church, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all kinds of faith, so as to move mountains, whoa. But have not love, I am, you know, what do we say there? We say, get that person a platform. God's Spirit says, he leads Paul to say, if I have not love, I am, how much, you tell me, nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, if I become a martyr but have not love, I've gained nothing. Do you hear the extreme priority of love in the church? 
Now, what does that love look like in a polarized world? Maybe one little story can help us see that. You may know the account of Jesus meeting a rich young ruler. They have an interaction about the Bible. Talk about it. And then Mark chapter 10, verse 17, I think it's on the screen behind me. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 says something interesting. It says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. What does it mean to love somebody? Let's keep reading. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have. And give to the poor, and you will all and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now time doesn't permit to dig into everything about this, but let me just point out a few things about this really quickly. First of all, Jesus loved this guy. That's what Mark chapter 10 says. Jesus loved him. And in Jesus' love for him, track with me here for a second, Jesus' love did not mean that he could not disagree with the guy's lifestyle. In fact, Jesus, in his love for him, has a respectful conversation and says, there's something wrong with your lifestyle. You need to do something differently if you're going to follow me. It's going to require some change on your part. So Jesus loved this guy, but Jesus' love did not mean that he could not disagree with the guy's lifestyle. But notice this as well. Jesus' disagreement with the guy's lifestyle did not make Jesus hostile toward the dude. It's a very respectful conversation. In fact, so respectful. It shined with so much love that do you notice how the guy felt when he walked away from this conversation with the teacher who just disagreed with him? The rich young ruler makes his decision. As Jesus teaches, you can serve money or you can serve God. It's only going to be one or the other. And some of us need to grapple with idols in our lives in similar ways and realize God doesn't share ultimate supremacy. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and your sexual preferences, whatever they may be. You can't serve God and your own self-centered lifestyle. It requires some changes. But Jesus loves in such a way that When this fella hears Jesus explain to him, you're going to have to make some changes if you're going to follow me. How does the guy walk away? He doesn't walk away feeling judged. He doesn't walk away feeling attacked. He walks away feeling sad. Sad that he can't have money and Jesus. Sad that if he's going to choose to love money more than Jesus, sad that he realizes 
there's something I'm missing by walking away from Jesus right now. And Jesus loves this guy in such a way that he's free to walk away, we might say. In fact, we don't know the end of the rich young ruler's story, do we? Who knows how this interaction might have changed his heart later. But here's what I want to say in a polarized climate that we live in, in a world of us against them. We're called to grow in love. And we're called to grow in love the way that Jesus loved. Which means loving real people with real questions. And it means that sometimes as we love real people with real questions, we'll open up God's word and we'll say, following Jesus requires walking in this way. Do you see it there in the text too? Do you see Jesus' teachings? How are you going to respond to that? And if we're following Jesus, if it's his love that is growing more and more within us, if it's his image to which we're becoming conformed more and more, it won't just lead us to be another red-faced shouting match with those who see things differently than us. It will lead us to be people who love others, even others who disagree with us, in such a way that if they walk away and say, I'm not going to follow Jesus, they still say, I'm sad because it seems like there's something I'm missing about Jesus. Here's my question. What if we are growing and abounding in Jesus' kind of love? Jesus' kind of love for one another here in this church family, which doesn't mean we all see everything the same way. It doesn't mean everybody here is automatically mature, but it means we actually care about each other. And we care about each other enough to sit down and talk through our questions together. And sometimes we open the Bible and we need to use a little more humility than Jesus because we're not Jesus. (laughs) But we need to use a little humility and say, as I read the scriptures, it seems like this is what it's saying. What do you see there? Because it's not about following me, it's about following him. We open the Bible and we, we ask people, what do you see about following Jesus here? What if his kind of love, which leads us to have respectful conversations, even with those who disagree with us, not ignore, neither ignoring the issue nor raging against the people? What if that kind of real love from the real Jesus were to multiply in our households? Between husbands and wives and dads and sons and moms and daughters and dads and daughters. And so what what would happen in our houses if that kind of respectful love were shining through all kinds of... What would happen in our small group meetings if that kind of love were more true two months from now than it is today? Because we can increase in these things. We're not stuck where we are, right? What if these things were more and more true of the gathering of people here on Sundays? Such that our culture looking on would know us not just as people who identify with the same partisan, tribal, self-righteous identities that everybody else in our neighborhood is identifying with. But what if they saw in us a people who love one another the way that the real Jesus loves real people? I want to suggest to you with an open Bible here, that's a prayer worth praying. 
That's a goal worth pursuing. That we would not just stay where we've been for the last 18 months in our level of loving interaction with one another, but that we would grow and increase. That it would multiply in my heart and multiply in your heart and multiply in our relationship and multiply in our groups and multiply in our Sundays. So that the church of Jesus Christ begins to look more and more like the love of the real Jesus that we really place our faith in. So here's a goal worth pursuing. That we as followers of Jesus would not stay stagnant where we have been. But that we would take a real step forward. In knowing the real Jesus whose love is patient and kind toward us. And take a step forward in knowing the real Jesus in such a way that it reshapes who we are. So that as we trust in the real Jesus who is patient and kind, and as we place our faith increasingly in Him, we become people who love more like Him. So that this becomes a description not just of an ideal, but of our actual relationships. 1 Corinthians Chapter 13, verse 4, love for one another is patient and kind. You talk about countercultural. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable in the home, in the small group, in the Sunday congregation. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And in fact, as we talk about this journey of following Jesus and growing in our faith and growing in our love, I want to remind you that the way of love is the whole journey, which is where Paul ends 1 Corinthians chapter 13. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. These three remain, but the greatest of these is love. And so, brothers and sisters, as we look at this time up ahead, I want to invite you to join in praying with gratefulness for one another and the work of the Holy Spirit already here in this congregation to pray that we wouldn't stay where we are, but we would continue to grow. Because as Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. As followers of of Jesus, may we continue to grow and abound in those very things.